Well, our scripture tonight is 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. 2 Peter 3, 1 through verses 9. Please give careful attention to the reading of God's holy word, 2 Peter, verses 1 through 9. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the word, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Repent. Now that is a word that can suck the air right out of a room pretty quickly. That word can straighten the spine and stir the mind to dart in any number of directions depending on what your understanding of repentance is and whether you're actively engaged in it or more on the ignoring its side, or if you're in the very common state of being a little bit in the middle, maybe even being a little double-minded about it. Well, in our passage this evening, we find some false teachers in the church who are boldly way far over on the side of ignoring repentance. And they're telling their congregation, look, you can really ignore repentance too, because while God may have created the world, he doesn't really care about it. We can do whatever we want because we have a deadbeat dad that doesn't care enough about us to check in on us or discipline us. And all of you goody two-shoes that are acting like God is holy and cares about our holiness or cares about having a relationship with us, look around. Do you see God doing anything anywhere? What I see these teachers say is just nature doing what nature does. This world is like a wound-up clock that ticks away on its own, and there's nothing miraculous going on. How much has the world gotten away with while God slumbers? How much have you gotten away with? Has God stopped warmongering dictators with an earthquake? Has God ever opened up the ground underneath you while you sin? No, they mock. God 
has hit the snooze button on injustice way too many times. And he's not waking up. We can do what we want. Well, in the midst of this display of gall against the Lord, Peter steps in to squash their arguments. And he says, In mocking repentance and holiness, these supposedly holy leaders in the church are such an abomination, such a spectacle, so unnatural that they themselves are actually a signpost that the end is near. And furthermore, their arguments aren't scriptural or rational. They're just doing what people do when they want to lie to themselves. They're focusing on things they want to see and conveniently letting other things slide from their attention. For these false teachers, that means setting aside God's word somewhere out of sight and out of mind. And because they've done so, in time, they become disinterested in questions like, what is man here for? Where did I come from? And where are we going? Instead, they settle for small-minded, small-hearted questions like, how can I feel good and be happy today? These teachers are like ship captains in the early church, where, which were sent out to sea with a purpose and a destination, but along the way the voyage has gotten too long, and they know, and now they only concern themselves with keeping the ship moving or functioning. Ship is drifting on whatever current it finds itself on, and it blows wherever the wind blows. And these captains even mock their own crew members, who still have the presence of mind to be uncomfortable on a ship with seemingly no purpose or destination. But when the crew shows their discomfort and with wandering aimlessly in the ocean of life and ask, Captain, sir, are you sure we don't have orders or a map or anything? They're met with dismissive scoffing. That's too much work, and you're being a drag, they might say. If we have our eyes set on a specific destination, that would mean that we can't always just sail with the current. And that would mean that sometimes we would have to tack back and forth against the wind, and we might have to ration our food and do all kinds of unpleasant and difficult things. Why would we do that? Look, we got this ship from a king. I'll give you that. But he's not coming here to find us. It's fine. Just relax and enjoy the ride. Well, Peter wants to stir up this congregation, this poor crew, to mutiny against these disgraceful, apparently once orthodox leaders. But his tactics of persuasion are not like those scoffers. He does want to bring God's word into the argument, and he does want to use sound logic. So using the word and reason, Peter confronts these scoffers, corrects their false doctrine, and comforts God's people. To confront them, Peter starts by reminding them that this is the second letter he's written to them. And both of these letters have a a sincerity of mind theme. In fact, in the first letter, Peter had told their elders to shepherd them to holiness by feeding them with God's word and by being examples of holiness to them. And they are very 
very far now from either of those things. So now, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3 here, Peter is actually concluding and summarizing a relentless diatribe against these false teachers. He said that they deny their master, they're sensual and greedy, they stir up blasphemy, and God's wrath is filled to the brink of overflowing on them. And when that stored-up anger should have them shaking in their boots, they are instead bold and willful and as irrational as wild animals. Indeed, they are worse than wild animals and worse off than those who have never known the truth or taught it. So much so that in the last verse of the previous chapter, Peter concludes that these are the dogs and sows who have returned to their vomit, who after washing themselves, return to wallow in the mire. So they don't care about what Peter says as an apostle, and they also don't care about what the prophets have said, about scoffers like themselves. When these teachers snidely ask, where is the promise of his coming? They don't care that they make themselves like Jeremiah's adversaries, who mocked his prophetic authority, and then they asked Jeremiah, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. If they cared about scripture, they would be sobered up as Jeremiah goes on in the next few verses to speak of the dismay and double destruction that's in store for them in the day of disaster. So they don't care about the prophets, and they don't care about the apostles, and that is ultimately because they are actively defying the commandment of the Lord and Savior. And with that, Peter's called these shysters out on the mat. He slipped off a glove, and he slapped them in the face with it, and he's confronted them by exposing their intentions. And now he's about to correct their doctrine for the sake of this poor crew. So what is their doctrine? In verse 4, the scoffers argue that since the time when the fathers fell asleep, meaning the ancient fathers going back to creation, all things are continuing as they have from the beginning of creation. Basically, since they don't deny creation and God's existence, but they do deny that God interacts with his creation, they are like what we might think of today as deists, or at that time, it might be said that they resembled Epicureans. Deists believe God made the world and then left it to its own natural processes. And Epicureans similarly acknowledge the existence of a god or gods, but they don't believe that any deity cares to interact in the world, especially in terms of retribution. And that's because Epicureans also see life as an opportunity to experience as many sensualities and pleasures as possible. So these false teachers are proposing a fundamentally alternate reality than that which is revealed in God's word. This worldview, this cosmology, is functionally has more in common with a modern brand of atheism with the, which the likes of Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris evangelize. These scoffers are functional atheists. Actually, it's even worse than that, though, because at least on camera, in debates, Modern atheists attempt to promote a sort of moralism, like a, like a brotherhood of mankind, or to be kind to one another because it's pragmatic sort of moralism. 
When pressed, though, logically, they can't deny that their worldview is meaningless, born out of chaos and ending in chaos, and that under naturalism and survival of the fittest, there is no purpose in this life but what you make of it and what you can get away with. In his book, The Blind Watchmaker, Richard Dawkins says, The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good, and nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Pitiless is the key there. Like modern evangelical atheists, the doctrine of these false teachers is chaotic, immoral, and pitiless. They mock justice and judgment and wrath, treating them as uncomfortable things which cramp their fun. But in reality, with all the wickedness of mankind, a worldview doctrine with no final judgment, no truth exposing good and evil, and no ultimate righting of wrongs is pitiless. And so Peter corrects this doctrine by pointing out three realities which are inconvenient to their case, and so they deliberately overlook. Creation, providence, and the flood. When Peter says in verse 5 that the earth was formed out of water and through water, he's actually touching on God both creating the world and providentially maintaining the world moment to moment throughout all of history. And you might say, okay, I see creation there, but where are we getting providence from? Well, the word, the word formed there actually conveys a sense of both forming and holding together something. And the phrase out of water is invoking a common ancient Near Eastern metaphor for bringing order out of chaos. So together, these two linguistic cues convey the point that chaos and disorder are the natural state of nature when it's not molded and continually maintained by order. This, then, is a watery one-two punch against his adversary's doctrine. First, creation is a pretty big intrusion into the world, and these scoffers don't even deny that God created the universe. So there is this little bit of a rem remnant of orthodoxy left in these teachers, which reminds us that somehow, at some point, these scoffers used to pass for sensible and qualified teachers. And one can imagine how much damage a once-trusted pastor could do who had now turned back from the Holy Commandment and was secretly bringing in damaging heresies, like chapter 2 says about them. So Peter reminds his congregation that, hey, creation is a pretty ginormous instance of God interacting with the world. And secondly, in regard to providence... It's not rational to see the consistency of the universe, the stability of the laws of physics, and the continuity of life cycles and seasons as an argument against God's continued interaction with creation. Why would those things be stable and consistent without God? These are evidence for God's preserving power against chaos. This is why in debates between theologians and naturalists, it's sad but often fascinating to watch naturalists squirm and posture themselves to either avoid any question of why the world is stable or to scoff at the very question as if it's foolish or weak or naive or irrelevant. How things are stable 
is all that matters to them. Because how is the only question naturalism could formulate an answer to. So they ask things like, why would why be relevant when everything we've ever experienced remains consistent and predictable according to fixed laws? Well, first of all, we all agree that nature is normally consistent. How unlivable would life be if we woke up one day and blue was green and warm was hot? And what if you jumped into the air one day and you just floated away because gravity was fluctuating? Or what if one day Pepsi tasted like Coke? Or if everyone finally appreciated dad jokes? We can't live like that. So yes, of course, we all agree that mostly all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. The difference is we praise God for it. And another difference is that our worldview makes sense. The universe is consistent because God is consistent and can preserve it that way. So life can thrive on patterns of regularity. What doesn't make sense is to say that there is no design or preservation behind things consistently continuing as they were from the beginning. It's so silly that the only real working theory that naturalists have to explain the consistency of the universe apart from God designing and upholding it that way is that there must be an infinite number of universes out there and we just got lucky enough to be in the one with cons consistent laws of physics. And this is not a joke to naturalists. For them, it must be a multiverse of madness out there and we're just lucky to be in one that's consistent. That's really the only working theory that those naturalists who are brave enough to entertain the question of why, can even come up with. And ironically, those who live by the creed of empirical evidence or it didn't happen have no empirical evidence for this multiverse. It's, it's entirely theoretical. So, it's completely unsurprising that most evangelical naturalists like these avoid the question of why the universe works and just stick with how. Because... With God preserving the world, that opens up a terrifying can of worms about other things that God is up to and keeping us accountable for. Really, the can is already open, though, because everyone already knows God exists. It's a plain, common-sense deduction from the wisdom and the beauty of creation and the sense of love and justice that we find in our hearts. But if you're going to try and ignore God, there aren't a lot of places to hide. You can lie to yourself like these false teachers and numb yourself with sensuality and debauchery. You can hope against hope that there's a multiverse or some other atheism of the gaps theory that turns out to be true. Or you can just try not to think too deeply about life as long as you can hold out. If you want to be rational, though, Peter says creation and providence point to God's interaction in this world. Peter doesn't stop there, though. In contending for the faith, he immediately follows up his watery one-two punch with a watery uppercut. A third glaring exception to the scoffer's naturalism was the cataclysmic flood. This was such a huge intrusion of God into history that as Peter describes it in verse 6, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. As one commentator, which some of us love around here, so eloquently puts it, 
the picture conveyed by Peter is that a world that had a, a world that had a total history, that had its beginning, developed its culture, and witnessed the course of the great conflict of heaven and hell to a final climax, and had its eschaton, and made a way for a new world. And since God can change history like that once, he can certainly do it again. In fact, the flood serves as a foreshadowing of the coming judgment when Christ will return. And just as God once judged the wickedness of man and water, Peter argues in verse 7, he will surely do it again in fire. So now Peter has confronted these scoffers, exposing their sensuous motives, and he's corrected their unscriptural and irrational doctrine, pointing out that, yes, there has been a great deal of consistency since creation, but there are three inconvenient truths which rebut their naturalism, creation, providence, and the flood. The universe is not uncreated, some eternal perpetual motion machine autonomously moving through time and untouched by the divine. Nothing could be further from the truth. Everything about our world is dependent on God. Its order, its origin, its sustainment, and its expiration date are all in God's hands. And yet, while Peter is bold and stern with these false teachers, his overall tone directed at this congregation is one of pastoral comfort. If we take another glance at the first verse of our passage, we see that Peter began by calling them beloved. And now, here in verse 8, everything he's said is about to culminate in the singular point he wants his audience and us to remember, and he calls them beloved again. See, Peter's goal here is not to drown God's people in fear of the power of God to command the waters of creation and destruction. If Peter's only point were that, that God hates evil and demands repentance and holiness, and that the day of judgment is coming, there would be no comfort in that message for sinners. It may remind us of the danger and filth of our sin. It may cause us to hate our sin and grit our teeth and fight against ourselves. And there's nothing wrong with that. But there's also nothing uniquely Christian in that. To get a full conception of true repentance Peter tells us in verse 8, as he quotes from Psalm 90, which we just sang, there is one fact that we can't overlook. By nature, God is patient. His perception of time is fundamentally different from ours. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So while these wicked teachers must have once heard that while we live in a unique, wildly merciful window of redemptive history, clearly the apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ never sunk down into the marrow of their souls. It never became part of them. They may mock God's lack of dramatic intervention in the world, but God is weaning his people off the milk of dramatic wonders and terrifying displays of his power, and instead reorienting his people toward dependence on his written word. And in this word, we find the mercy of God in Christ on every page. God doesn't want us to be a people who look to the sky for a sign 
or the absence of a sign to guess at God's mood or nature or his plan. He wants us to be a people who seek him in his word, a people who become accustomed to hearing and paying attention to and understanding and responding to the kind of thoughtful reasoning and recalling of scripture which Peter implements here. Again, always pointing to the mercy of God in Christ. And that is so much better this way. Instead of calling us to repentance at the base of a smoking mountain, which Israel was hardly brave enough to even lift their eyes to look up at, Jesus sends ambassadors like Peter, who call us to repentance with comfort. From far, far from startling and scary like Moses, with a horned and glowing countenance, Peter's manner comes across as compassionate and empathetic. In chapter 1, of verse 1 of Second Peter, the first verse of the book, uh, we find that this book humbly is humbly addressed to God's people by Peter. Peter's greeting to this church is to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter is a man humbled by faith blunders and doctrinal blind spots. And he too has struggled to imagine that God might do something outside of the status quo he was used to. As our pastor pointed out last week, Peter being called Satan by our Lord was all wrapped up in Peter being stuck in the naturalistic mindset about what a king was always supposed to look like. But God was patient with him. And in time, he came to wrap his head around God himself, coming as a king in the flesh, taking the sin of his people upon himself and judging it on the cross that his people might be declared righteous. So God has sent a church struggling to understand why our Lord's second coming is taking so long, an ambassador who struggled to understand the nature of Christ's first coming. This is the type of kindness and patience and graciousness God will continue to treat you with for all your days. And knowing this is like a secret weapon of repentance. I'll leave you with this little illustration. With the weather getting warmer, and it's that time of year when it's fun to start thinking about going to the beach again. If you're a kid or you're a kid at heart, you likely want to go out into those waves and let them chase you onto the shore or jump over them or to dive into them and let them crash over you as you pop out on the other side. And maybe, if you're feeling brave, you might venture out until your feet no longer touch the sandy ground. If you go to a beach like Oceanside, near the harbor, though, you'll want to pay attention to those temporarily yellow signs with the red flags that the lifeguards put up, the ones that say, caution, rip current, and no swimming. If you don't know what a rip current is, it basically means an undertow that will drag you out to sea and is often so strong that it is just a nightmare to try and swim back to shore against. When I was 19, my friend and I bought some used sea kayaks, and we went out into those waters. We didn't notice those signs, 
And we didn't notice that no one was swimming, though, because we came out of the water from the harbor and not from the beach. Well, in that instant, my friend and I left the safe, the instant we left the safety of the jetty and the waters became more turbulent, we were both immediately separated from our kayaks in a very unceremoniously way. And they went one way and we went another and we found ourselves swimming to the shore for our lives. Well, fast forward about 40 minutes later, and I'm laying face down on the beach, more exhausted than I've ever been in my entire life, and recovering from the trauma of having been disoriented over and over and over again as the waves crashed over me and rolled and dragged me away from the beach, and I really did not think I was going to make it back. And as I picked my head up and I looked down the beach, I saw walking toward me my friend from way down the beach and lightheartedly asking me, Hey, how you doing, man? See, my friend remembered something that I knew, but I had just completely forgotten about in the midst of my panic and exertion. If you ever get caught in a rip current, you don't just swim with all your brute strength in a straight line back to the shore. In a rip current, the shortest distance between two places is not a straight line. In that situation, you want to swim diagonally back to shore. Because you will eventually end up slipping out and pulling away from the undertow, and then you can just sort of swim like normal back to the, back to the shore. Well, likewise, when you're battling with the sin that's remaining in you, repenting with your eyes set on the shore of our merciful king's land, it's not all about exertion. Remembering that God is merciful and patient with you in Christ is like remembering to swim diagonally against a riptide. It doesn't mean that the trial and the swimming will be over. Repentance will never be easy. But when we remember God's patience and mercy, the yoke of that swim becomes easier and the burden becomes lighter. We praise God for the mercy we have in Christ. And may we live out this life of repentance for Christ's sake. And may we always be mindful of his patience toward us in it forever. Amen.